2: Also don't do introductions I should have said that first so yeah that? I've listened okay. So okay good so I was like
3: I don't know who these people are but right. they figure it out as it goes and that's
2: what I kind of feel like if we just start having a conversation <laughs> and that's how you get to know somebody is that oh my glasses are got clear is that you just start talking and people finally figure it out but um we'll, die, we'll start first by getting into your background you know I know you've done a bodybuilding thing you've ran a marathon you're a hiker you've got a book. Um, so yeah, let's we'll just put the ball in your court and we'll see where the, we go from there. Okay. Uh, so, so you have, what motivated you to get this book going or writing this book, I guess?
3: Yeah. So my book is called Strong Like Her, um, a celebration of rule breakers, history makers, and unstoppable athletes. It came out last year from Simon and Schuster, and it is a cultural history about women and physical strength. And there were a lot of factors that went into me wanting to do this book project. Uh, I think the first is that I started strength training uh, probably in 2014, 2015. And I had always been athletic and played a lot of sports, but I had never really wanted to be stronger when I was growing up. It just wasn't something that I saw a lot of girls or women doing, and it wasn't something I ever really thought about too much. So, When I started to strength train, it really kind of changed my ideas about what I was capable of and what, um, what I felt like as I was getting stronger. Um, and I was seeing so many other strong women in the public eye, uh, American Ninja Warrior was becoming really popular. CrossFit was, was, uh, blowing up, um. A lot of people were participating in obstacle course races, and it just felt like on Instagram and um, in other places I was looking, I was seeing a lot more muscularity on women than I ever had before. And that got me thinking about where you know, how that had evolved, whether maybe it had been cool for women to be strong in previous eras. And it was something that kind of ebbed and flowed, or maybe it was something that had been progressing in a linear fashion. And we were at the the peak of it, but I really didn't know. And it was when I signed up for a bodybuilding show that all of this kind of coalesced, um, and came together because I started to get a lot of different reactions. Um, on one hand, people were like, "This is really cool. What does your training plan look like? what What does it mean to be in a competition? Uh, you know, why are you turning orange?" And you know, they were very they were very interested in those aspects of it. And then on the other hand, I got a lot of comments like, "Don't get too big because men don't like that," or "Don't change your body in a way that's not." pleasing to the eye, um, or don't get hurt. Uh, so it felt like, you know, on one hand, people thought that, um, developing vis- visible muscularity was a cool thing to do, but we still had these ideas about what women should look like, what activities they should pursue. And so I started to do some research, and I went to the library, and I checked out a lot of books on the history of fitness, and I found that uh, there wasn't much about women. I just wasn't reading much about the progression of women, particularly in strength sports. And so that is where I saw this opportunity to really uh, do this book.
2: So you said you're athletic all your life, or growing up, right? Right. And you played sports. Did they not when I say they, I guess your educators or in high school or whatever have you, they didn't provide strength training for you at that time or?
3: Not really. So I, my main sports in high school, my main sport was basketball. We never strength trained. Um, And then swimming and tennis. We did not strength train for tennis. We did go into the weight room for swimming for what's called dry land training, but we never picked up a barbell. We didn't use weights. We were mostly in there doing um, body weight movements, which is totally fine. Nothing wrong with that, but there was not an emphasis on lifting. I did a little bit of it. Uh, I did take a weightlifting class in ninth grade and I took one on my own over the summer, my junior year or something yeah. like that. But it just, um, I don't know when I, I remember I first started deadlifting after I graduated from college. And, a trainer set me up with a deadlift and I think I was deadlifting something like 40 pounds, which no shade to that, but that is wasn't anywhere near my capability of what I could deadlift. Um, and then once I actually started getting into strength training, I realized I was easily capable of deadlifting over 200 pounds, you know, but I didn't know that back then. And I didn't see women deadlifting in the gym, you know? So there just wasn't, um, There weren't those examples that I was seeing in my daily life. So
2: were you seeing this or doing this at a
3: gym or
2: like a Planet Fitness or, uh, I don't know, any type of regular gym, but not at you, like a high school gym where you saw – uh, you're a trainer trying to hook you up with this. Is this
1: where you, that
3: was post, that was post college. So back back in high school, I did go to like a local YMCA and got an orientation to the weight room, but that, you know, it was very much focused on the machines. And I don't know that we did that much free weight training. I don't think we were back squatting or deadlifting or anything. So it was really like, not, you know, not what,
2: it could have been so. So in my in my experience, I started in ninth grade, and in high school, I don't know how it is on, out there on the West Coast. I've never been out there, but um, we get we had we did block scheduling where we did an hour and a half per class, and you had four classes throughout the day. And once you got to ninth grade, you could take a weightlifting class, and uh, yeah, that's where I started. And I was just going off based off what our teacher there at the time wanted to teach us and now some of his stuff was good some of it was not great but uh but yeah but that's where like you said i started seeing myself progress and that's when i started like drinking the kool-aid and getting more and more into strength training and seeing what i could do but it was predominantly guys that took that class rather than you know like a 50 50 or 60 40 or what have you but i remember there was like the handful and they either played a sport in high school but no but no other females took that class
3: yeah, we had something similar where in ninth grade we could take weightlifting. It was considered like an advanced class, and you had to test into it. And I took it, and there were only a handful of other girls who took it. Um, but again, it was you know we were in the weight room a bit, but it was no no um, free weights. It was all on on the machines. So uh, and it was it was good. It was fine, um, but it wasn't something. That was super popular. And then I didn't, I didn't take PE really the rest of my high school career because um, I was busy taking academic classes. And I, because I played sports, I was able to substitute that for, um, you know, for taking the PE credits. So I, interviewing so many women for the book, I interviewed over 40 people. And a lot of them are, um, I have 23 portraits of women in the book who are modern day athletes in all different sports. And so many of them um, played at a collegiate level, whatever their sport was, and told me that they did not do any strength training in support of, of whatever their sport was. And there's almost no sport that couldn't benefit from having stronger athletes. So I think this is changing now. I don't think you would go to many collegiate programs today and see... No strength training whatsoever, but a lot of these women are, you know, in their thirties and didn't have that when they were in college. So I think it's something that's over the past decade really grown. But before that, it really was just sort of dependent on your coach. It wasn't something that everyone was doing.
2: Yeah. I mean, just like you said, uh, maybe, you know, a little bit longer than a decade, but it seems, you know, women's sports have started growing and growing and growing and obviously with Title IX and other aspects that, hey, you know, collegiate universities are actually – I forgot what year it was. I think it was the NCAA basketball tournament, and they had, like, the man's weight room. Somebody posted this on Twitter. Something They had the man's weight room, what they were getting to work with, and then the women's weight room. Yeah. I mean, it was literally a dumbbell rack. And a <laughs> it was just a box. rack. Yeah, yeah. It was just like – um and if you and if you look at sports science i mean yeah if you you know mimic you know sports movements and actually go in like lifting barbells and doing plyometrics and you know x said thing it improves your uh athletic performance ridiculously in high amounts rather than just hey here's a dumbbell go do something like it. i mean yeah who i mean who would do that what's tr- like proper trainer strength coach would actually say hey yeah here's a dumbbell rack that's all you need it makes zero sense
3: Right. And that was very, I'm so glad that that did get highlighted and it's sad that it had to be highlighted on social media in order for them to do something about it. But that is how we are making progress is by pointing out how ridiculous it is that these NCAA men's players got this beautiful weight room and the women got a single dumbbell rack that probably went up to like 25 pounds. So yes. Um, and you know, different sports require different things. Not everyone needs to be maxing out it and Mm -hmm. people do different types of lifts. Some people would really benefit from like the power um, and speed that comes from Olympic lifting, whereas others would need something different. But so it's interesting. It was interesting for me in researching the book to learn about how the different athletes incorporate strength training into their routines based on what their sport of choice is. Uh, But I think absolutely like the research shows that, you know, everyone athletically can benefit oh. from, from some kind of strength training. Yeah,
2: I got, a, I got a lot of questions there. That's what you just said. So you started researching when you started doing the bodybuilding course, or was this before, like after high school, like when you finished sports or when did you start doing more research into your book?
3: Okay. So the book, I started uh, it in 2017 Okay, is when I got the idea for the book. So I'm well, well past high school and college by this point. Gotcha. Um, and I have been a professional writer for my entire career, ah. a, a freelance writer, primarily, um, largely focused on travel before this, but now, but I wrote about a, a lot of things. I did write a lot of health as well. And so, um,
2: So you've always been interested in like health and fitness and that whole.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I've learned so much. It's interesting, though, because I I recently found some conversations I had with a friend back in, um, you know, the mid to late 2000s. And I just didn't just our ideas about strength training have changed so much since then. Like he was suggesting that I get into Olympic weightlifting and I was like, why would I ever do that? You know? And I was like, that's silly. Um, and now I realize it's not silly, but Definitely. I don't think, I don't think that that was a, you know, it just wasn't something that people were doing and it's still something a lot of people aren't doing. Whenever I write an article about it, I have to explain what a clean and a snatch is because a lot of people don't know, and that's totally fine. But um, there's there are just so many more women out there now who are participating in powerlifting and weightlifting and strong woman competitions oh, yeah. and all of that that you wouldn't see um, in the mid-2000s.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's what you said earlier is that it was almost a narrative that if a woman goes and picks up a barbell or any type of strength, weight resistance, or whatever you want to call it, that she's going to get bulky and that that's not what the male species or male, whatever persona wants to see, which I a hundred percent disagree with because I like it. So, but it's a cultural norm or cultural predatory predatory. Is is that what I'm trying to say? But again, like you said that, you know, the Olympics, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of CrossFit. I like doing that a lot. And there's women in there that, I mean, it all depends on what your definition of bulky and versus lean versus muscular, and you know they're lifting, you know, way more than I would, especially at the elite level. And I would never say that, oh, um, she's bulky. No, she's not. To me, she's not. Just because she's got muscles and she's got a six pack, no. I mean, even, even I talk. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. No, I talk about this a lot in the book. I have an entire chapter on it, really, because nice. the word "bulky" is so—it's uh, just it's
2: something used almost. I mean,
1: are, yes. Well, and
3: everyone has a definition. There's no definition of bulky, but there was a study back in oh, I'm going to forget now. I want to say around 2010, and um, with celebrity photos and asking people to kind of label them. And there was a photo of Jessica Beale on the beach playing handball. She is not super, she's not big by any means. She's quite lean. She has a little bit of like bicep definition. She's got a little bit of ab definition, but really just on the sides. She doesn't even have like horizontal lines. And she was labeled as bulky. And women said they did not want to look like that. They did not want to look bulky. And I think a modern, to a modern eye, we, most people would not call Jessica Biel bulky today, but that's sort of beside the point, like who defines bulky and and what is it? And so in researching this book, I looked into where our cultural norms come from, where our ideas of beauty come from, because we tend to think that they're kind of fixed, but they're, They're not especially for body type. They are a bit more, they change less for um, facial attractiveness. For instance, we do have some hardwired ideas about what a beautiful face looks like, but bodies change drastically over time and throughout cultures. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, the most common search on Google in regards to a butt was how to make yours smaller and now it's how to make Big, it bigger. bigger. Like it's just been, you know, that's just a shift that's happened in the past decade. And uh, so our ideas about bulkiness change a lot over time. And it's a lot of it is about who you surround yourself with. So if you see women who are muscular, if you see women who can do pull-ups and can lift a lot of weight or whatever it is, that becomes normalized much faster than, than we think it does. And then so your ideas, um, expand about, about what women look like. Uh, so it, it was really interesting looking into that. Well, do
2: you think the entertainment industry has a lot to do with that? Obviously like movies, you know, TV, music, um, you know, magazines, even Instagram now, Instagram influencers are saying, Hey, this is what, you know, the perfect male and or female body is supposed to look like. Uh,
3: definitely. And, and the, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think the entertainment industry has a little bit less to do with it today because of Instagram, because we have social media and, you know, quote unquote, regular people can develop these followings. And you can kind of find your people on social media, whereas in the 80s and the 90s, like all we kind of had to look at in terms of this ideal body was from magazines or in sure. movies or on TV. <laughs> And so I think now we get to see kind of a wider range of different bodies and that has opened the door for more muscularity on women, for instance, in addition to other different body types. Uh, And then I think, you know, Hollywood has kind of followed suit and we, we see more strong women on screen today. But I think it's interesting, even if you look at Wonder Woman, she's not, the actress who plays Wonder Woman is not particularly big um, she's lean. she doesn't have get, a get ton it. of muscularity, you know, and, and that's no, um, criticism of her at all, but it's just, uh, she's probably not as muscular as, you know, she was imagined to be by the creators.
2: Yeah. Well, her. I mean, even in the comics, I don't remember seeing her being, you know, what you would picture, like a straight looking Ronnie Coleman female version, yeah. I guess. I mean, she was I mean, muscular into comics, but pretty lean, but – and th- we can, that's a whole different story anyway just because the guy who created that was really infestuated with bondage and stuff. I don't know if you knew all that, but um, – but yeah, so but that's neither here nor there, though. So anyway, uh, so when – so you said you did the bodybuilding circuit for a minute, right? So did you – Oh, sorry. So did you do like – don't they have like a figure competition and then one where's it was obviously you're trying to be, like I said, Ronnie Coleman version? Like I, I'm not familiar –
3: yeah. The yeah. I did a bodybuilding show. There are different categories. I competed in the bikini category, which is sort of the least amount of muscularity gotcha. that you need to be successful. But in bikini, you're looking for your shoulders and hips to be approximately the same size. And then you want to come in with a smaller waist. And there's a lot of emphasis on your glutes and hamstrings. So in different, different categories, like figure, as you mentioned, you're looking for um, a V taper in the back, you want wider shoulders that come into a narrow waist. Um, and you want a bit more definition in the upper body. Um, so each category kind of comes with its different standards.
2: So were you considered by critics or friends or, you know, I guess if you want to say haters, whatever, you, did they actually call you, you were too bulky? In that,
3: I don't remember anyone to my face telling me that I was bulky, okay. but I did have a family member tell me that I looked like a man. And it was really interesting because I, I mean, I guess I can't really say, but I think very few people would say I looked like a man because again, I'm competing in the lowest sort of level of muscularity. I was pretty small. I was pretty lean at the time and I just didn't really look like a man, but because like you could actually see my delts, I guess I did to him. So uh, I did get a few comments like that, but they really didn't bother me. Um, but I can see how they would bother bother some people, especially if you're getting them all the time.
2: Well, do you think it's? I got a couple more questions on that too. But do you, one thought: Do you think that's just the insecurity by that family member? Is just that you know, oh, she looks better than I do, you know, in a, in a swimsuit? Is that they just wanted <laughs> to like, protract their hate onto you and to say something negative? just to try to bring you down that cause they're already feeling down about themselves. Does that kind of make sense?
3: Yeah. I think in this case it was probably just a comment that was trying to be funny. You know, uh, he thought he was being humorous. Um, but it's like, what is, what's funny about that? Uh, but I do think in some cases, I think a lot of things that are said online are from people who are very insecure. I think that's, is a lot of what trolling is about online. Um, and fortunately, like I really wasn't subjected to that. And I'm grateful for that because I did, by the time I competed in bodybuilding, that was a, a look that was desired by a lot of people. So, um, what year was you know, it that?
2: When, when, when did this go down?
3: I competed in 2017.
2: Okay. Yeah.
3: yeah. So not, not too long ago. Yeah, not and, um, you know, so it was just more, sort of, there are more people who are familiar with it by that point.
2: Well, I, I've had a couple of friends who actually did that and I thought they called it figure competitions, but it, maybe it was a swimsuit too. I don't remember, but, uh, what's, but did you do a special diet for it? Obviously you had to, to get that lean.
3: I definitely did. What's That's the biggest that? part of it. Honestly, I'm
2: always about that stuff. I like learning.
3: Um, you know, it changed throughout. So I had a coach and my diet would change every week. So it's sort of, hard to say what it was I but mean, it, it was recorded
2: macros i mean was it mainly like 60% protein 30% carbs you know yeah so
3: i started on more of a traditional bodybuilding diet like that like a high protein relatively high carb low fat diet but i didn't really see a lot of progress so i eventually went to a low carb diet and i ate quite a bit of fat and um yeah i ended up on a ketogenic diet at the end and, uh, I would be told what to eat, mm-hmm. um, and when at what intervals, I think I usually ate two hours and 40 minutes apart. Makes sense. Um, and then toward the end, and I had a certain amount of water I had to drink every day. That was really challenging at the beginning. I think I was drinking like 140 ounces of water, which was way more than I was used to. <laughs> and I, uh, at, I did start intermittent fasting too, um, toward the end of the training. So I would do fasted cardio in the mornings and then I would eat and I would train weights later in the day. Um, and I would then often do like a yoga or Pilates or something along those lines. So a lot of times I was working out three times a day, which was a commitment.
2: Do you like intermittent fasting? I've been kind of playing with that a little bit here and there.
3: I do. Once I get into it, it's pretty easy for me. I I always like when I was growing up, I never ate breakfast, um, and so I guess I was kind of I was unknowingly intermittent fasting all throughout my childhood, and um, yeah. So I I don't mind it. Um, I actually did an experiment when I stopped bodybuilding. I started uh like I had done a ten thousand meter row while I was fasting and because it was just what my gym was doing I've that day. There. I've done that. It's uh Yeah. <laughs> it's just a long time to be on a yeah, row. Every,
2: every <laughs> I was like, fuck.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had done that and then after I um you know after I was done bodybuilding and I was eating more carbs again and I was not intermittent fasting, that we retested it. And so I thought, this will be a great opportunity to test my two times and see how much better I do now that I'm like eating more carbs and I'm gonna fuel myself beforehand. And I actually did better fasted. I was really surprised because I went into it thinking that I was gonna do better uh, you know, having these carbs a certain right, amount of time beforehand. And I didn't, I did better fasted. And so I have, I didn't see any performance drop with that kind of high fat, low carb diet, except for my deadlift. Um, my like one rep max sure. went down quite a bit, but my cardio, I think got better. Um, and my, you know, I think my power or strength didn't increase, but it didn't really drop off in any of the other lifts. So that was, that's just an interesting thing to play with. There are so many variables that you can play with with your your diet and fitness and all of that.
2: So when you were intermediate fasting, you ta- just, you said you didn't eat breakfast. So you were taking the mornings off and maybe just only eating in the evenings? Or how, how did you do it?
3: When I did it, I think I started eating at 2 p.m. Okay. And then I would stop eating at 10 p.m.
2: And that worked well for you? You had the energy all throughout the day? Or are you a napper? <laughs> yeah.
3: I am, but you know what? I didn't really have to nap back then. Okay. Um, I think because I was just eating really high quality foods and I was sleeping a lot. So I slept a lot at night. Um, I was sleeping nine hours nice. uh, in order to just feel refreshed and rested. So I'm definitely a napper now, though, in my, in my <laughs> daily life. I love a good nap. Um, I did take a nap earlier today, as a matter of fact, but... I am a kind of a night owl. So that's why my like 10 PM is sort of late for some people. But I, that was right after I would get home from the gym typically. Okay. So that's why I ate that late. That
2: makes sense. So I've heard that, that, you know, I've, when I've experienced intermediate fasting, I'm not a napper, but I've never been a napper, but, um, I've always had energy throughout the day and I've always felt fine. Like I, but I'm also getting, like you said, at least seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Like I have a hard cut off. like I'm going to bed. You know, unless it's like Saturday Saturday evening, I know I don't have anything to do on Sundays, so if I yeah. go out and have a couple of extra drinks of sweet tea, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, but I feel like that's what always has helped me, and I don't. You know, I've only did a couple, I've days of intermediate fasting, but um, and when I do do it, I wait till usually afternoon to start eating. Um, yeah, and I've also experienced that. You know, I don't know if you've heard of Renaissance periodization. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I followed them for a while, and that was back in 2017. And then I didn't go full strict carnivore diet, but I did it for, man, eh, I was probably 80% strict, but I probably did it for two to three weeks. And, you know, it's only so much meat you can <laughs> eat. And then you're just like, gosh, give me something else, man. Yeah. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's been my experience with it. And I've had great results with it. I, I've not noticed – you know, I do CrossFit competitions when I can, and I've never noticed anything as far as uh, – you know, and I change my pro- change my programming regularly as far as my numbers going up or and or down. And But that could just be bad strength training days. But what I'm getting at is that I work full-time and go to the gym afterwards, and then I still feel pretty good all throughout the day. So
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it works great for a lot of people, and I think it's worth trying out for sure.
2: So do you CrossFit or you said you did a 10,000-meter row? Is that kind of what your style of training is? I, or?
3: Yeah. So when I started strength training, it was CrossFit that I started with. Yeah. And um, I don't currently CrossFit because of the pandemic. It's sort of changed by where I can go to the gym and all of that. But um, but I did for a number of years.
2: Has that been weird out there? You're in Seattle, right? Yes. Yeah. Is a pandemic pretty rough time for you out there or the whole city itself?
3: Yeah. Well, well, Seattle was the first place where it hit back in spring of 2020. And so that was, I think we saw it coming before most of the rest of the country. Um, My book was actually coming out in April and I had all of these events planned. I was going to New York. There was going to be a launch party. I was going on these radio shows and all these different things. And I remember my publicist still, thought that I was going to do those things into March. And I'm like, there's no way, you know, this is not going away. And uh, I was right (laughs) and (laughs) did not go away, here we still are more than a year later. Um, But for me, I live in a small condo. um, So I can't really set up too much of a home gym. I've got, I'm looking at a kettlebell and a couple of dumbbells right now. And that is pretty much all I've got. Uh, So I did a lot of online classes um, for most of the pandemic. I have started going back into a gym now. It's a climbing gym though, but they have a, a weight area. So I've been slowly getting back under a barbell and just taking it really slow because when I first went back, I got so sore trying to do something similar to what I used to do. And even though I was capable of it, my body was not used to those movements or that weight. So um, it's been, I don't know, it's a little bit frustrating. It's definitely humbling because I've just been kind of adding five pounds to the lift each time. And so I started at a pretty low level, but it's been great because my body feels good. And I'm just now getting to the point where I am – I'm sort of at my like current limit where I can't necessarily finish each set. Um, that just happened the last time I worked out. So it's been good. I've gotten there without injury. Um, That's good. But it took a while to build back up for sure.
2: So have you always been into climbing too, or is that just something you wanted to start?
3: No, I got a membership to the climbing gym last year, about a month before the pandemic, started just because I wanted to improve my grip strength and try something new. And I thought it would be a great way to do that. So I was planning to just go, you know, two times a week and, uh, as a supplement to CrossFit. Um, but then, and I bought a membership for a year as a, during a deal and then everything shut down. And so my membership just got put on hold and now that's the only membership I have. And so I've been going there to lift and I just started getting back into climbing and, Luckily, I had not gotten good at it yet, so I can't be, you know, I, I haven't gotten worse because I was never good at climbing to begin with. <laughs> so <laughs> I can just start over there more easily than with CrossFit, for instance.
2: So do you have plans to actually, uh, who's the guy that does all the, like, the no ropes or no safety nets stuff? Um, is it Han something?
3: Oh, Alex Hunnell. Hey,
2: Alex Hunnell. there you go. Are you, is that no. what you're trying or is that, this is just no. something us to kind of play around with?
3: Yeah, I just thought, you know, one of my weaknesses is that upper body strength, pull-ups and that kind of thing. And I just thought climbing would be a good way to work on that in like a, a more fun way. And it also has a strategy element that I think is a lot of fun um, because there are a lot of different ways to solve the problems, which is what they're called in bouldering. Uh, you know, a lot of different ways that you can do each route. And it's it gives you, a you know, an ability to bring in a mental aspect to your exercise, which I like.
2: And I'm sure that played a lot in writing this book and going down that whole road is just for me, I, you know, I think my biggest, I don't want to say my biggest weakness, but the brain and just doing mentally doing certain workouts is just obviously mentally exhausting. And it can either break you or make you and you, know, you just find yourself up against a wall and you gotta push through. I don't know hope that it's kind of making sense but like i just I, I respect i guess like when people who actually write books is that it's something i feel like i could never sit down and get through it and finish one and i have the utmost respect for somebody like you who can uh so when did you find time and like was it mentally exhausting trying to write that book and how long did it take and all that good stuff did you ever get writer's block that's one thing i'm always interested about
3: yeah lots of good questions yeah, there sorry. so um, I had one year to write the book. I had a book deal from Simon & Schuster. So I was on a timeline um, and it really became my full-time job pretty much during that time. So I didn't have to kind of fit it into my schedule, I guess, because writing is my job. So mm-hmm. it was what I was hundred percent focused on. I did try to freelance a little bit on the side and then I ended up just kind of
2: Wait, so let, 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 I, don't, I don't want to cut you off, but what is freelance? Yeah. Is that just writing whatever you feel like at, the, at that moment or?
3: So freelance just means I don't have an employer. I'm self-employed okay. and I write for a variety of publications. Okay. Um, so I don't get to write whatever I want, but I, there's kind of two ways it works. You can either pitch ideas. So I might have an idea for a particular publication. I will send them that idea and then they will either assign it or ignore me or say no. Um, and then um. I've been freelancing for a long time. So a lot of publications will come to me and say, Hey, would you like to write a story about X, Y, Z? And then I do so. Uh, so I had been doing that for a long time. Um, and then I made the transition into the book world. And, uh, so I had a year, a year to work on it. And I, uh, just in terms of writer's block, um, I, not really. I wouldn't say I got writer's block, but there were definitely days that I didn't. Yes. I, don't know. I I loved this topic so much that actually it was so much fun to research. I really enjoyed it. Sure. I guess there were days I sat down and it's sort of like, where do I even begin? Because I had so many different chapters in, in the book, so many different stories. So it goes from ancient Greece and the Spartans, um, and some of the um, mythical characters of um, ancient Greece to the 1800s where we have pedestrianism, which was America's first spectator sport. And I talk about kind of the spheres of, um, you know, the separate spheres for men and women that start in this era post uh, the industrial revolution. I talk about swimmers in the early 1900s and the circus stars, Muscle Beach in the 1930s, the marathon runners of the 70s, um, you know, the soccer players of today, the first women in the 70s who were uh, competing in powerlifting and bodybuilding and those kinds of sports. And so it covers just a wide array of topics. And so sometimes it was like, where what do I even want to work on today you know where what should I research today and the places where I would sort of get stuck were how do I want to organize this and what do I want to cut because I had way more words than I needed I actually ended up having to cut 20,000 words from
2: 20,000
3: yes which was a lot why did, and, you,
2: wait, why did you have to cut that just because it was too much or somebody wanted you to Yeah, cut it? My, ed- my editor
3: had a certain number of words that okay. she wanted the book okay. to And so actually, after I had a, a year to write it, I then had a couple of months to revise it. And that was the most intense time because I had most of the work done, but my editor had some um, notes for me on, mostly on organization. So we kind of changed the way that the book was organized mm-hmm. during that period. and it was a lot. I was working very hard, um, during that time and just getting everything finalized. And, um, so that was kind of just figuring out how to put everything together. I also have bios of the 23 women who are photographed in the book and figuring out where to put those. I have quotes from each of them. And of course, they're beautiful photos and sort of like, which chapter should they go in? And how is this all going to come together? Those were some of the things that were challenging, but not necessarily the writing portion, because that's what I excel at.
2: I gotcha. Well, so you, you interviewed all 23 of these women, they're all from different sports and different eras and all that.
3: Right. Well, they're all, uh, they're all modern day athletes. So they're they're different ages. The youngest was 12 and the oldest was um, I think 58. So they uh, were, uh, you know, wide range of ages. And then I also interviewed some kind of historical figures. So one of those is Catherine Switzer. She ran the Boston marathon in 1967 and is the first woman to do that with numbers on. And there's an iconic series of photos of one of the race organizers trying to pull her off the course. And so it was really great to have a chance to talk to her because she she went on to get uh, to really be a trailblazer in women's running. And she won the New York marathon. She got the women's marathon added to the Olympics in 1984. And to this day, she works on Um, you know, access for women in countries or areas where they don't have access to athletics to be able to um, exercise and and to run. So I got to interview people like that, as well as some um, historians some academics, other people who've researched different aspects of what's included in the book.
2: Nice. Did you watch the Olympics this year?
3: I watched about 12 hours a day.
2: So you were hardcore.
3: I'm a hardcore Olympics Enthusiast, I have loved the Olympics ever since I can remember. In Salt Lake City in 2002, the Winter Games, I actually was a torchbearer, so I got to run oh. with the torch, which was pretty cool because I was in okay, high school. At the time. I know. <laughs> I saw, I because I got the like you know the uh, sweats or like the warm-up outfit that they wear in the Olympics when yeah. they march in. I got one of those in order to run with the torch. And I thought I was pretty cool. I would
2: say it's pretty badass.
3: Yeah. I was pretty excited. Do you still have it? I I hope so. I hope it's (laughs) at my parents' house somewhere. Um, But like I was in the local newspaper and I was like, wow, I'm so cool.
2: How do you feel about, and I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here, uh, is that some people think that the Olympics, I don't want to say a joke, but that, you know, it's a great opportunity for those athletes and to get that time to actually show their skills and whatever events they're doing, but they're also not getting paid or, uh, and they're just kind of like, Hey, we're representing our country, but we're just doing it for what? And that, I guess I'm getting this from uh, I think it's called the price of gold and it's on HBO. It's a documentary. I think Lolo Jones is on it and Michael Phelps mm-hmm. was in there and they kind of talked about how, where we talk about mental health awareness, that they, that was a big part of the Olympics and that, you know, just not getting paid and, you know, actually just doing this and living on a, I think if you were actually on the Olympic, not the village, but the place in Colorado, the Olympic compound. The were, training yeah, center. Yeah, there you go, training center. They were only getting like thirty or $36,000 a year. And uh, it was almost just, I guess, how, what are your thoughts on that, I guess is what I'm trying to ask.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. It's tough to be an athlete in most sports, honestly. Yeah. You know, there are some that pay extreme amounts of money, but that's the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many sports – don't. And one of the things I talk about in the book is sponsorship contracts for women, particularly because they get so much less in sponsorship money than men, but they don't drive necessarily fewer sales than men. So, Allison Felix, who was just in her fifth Olympics in Tokyo mm-hmm. and won a couple of medals to add to her collection, you know, she was a sponsored athlete with Nike. And after she got pregnant, they Uh, you know, her contract went on a pause, basically, she wasn't getting paid anything. And then they wanted to renegotiate and uh, give her much less money. But they were still using her image. And they were promoting her as a mother and, you know, saying Nike sponsors mothers and all of this. And uh, a number of other track and field athletes came out in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and, and talked about this, how they were kind of forced to get back into racing before they were ready because they didn't, they wouldn't have any money otherwise, but these companies are still profiting off of their endorsement basically, even as they're not paying them. So there's a lot of. I don't issues how that can
2: happen. Tied I mean, into that. Yeah. I mean, how can you still use them and not pay for them? I mean, somebody's got to be in a breach, breach of contract. I would think that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm sure – I mean, I'm no lawyer or anything by that means, but I don't know if you knew that. But, I mean, I would assume (laughs) that somebody has the right to sue somebody there, I would think.
3: Well, I think, you know, a lot of times these contracts are not – the athletes take what they can get because of what you're talking about. It's hard to train and to not be able to have a full-time job. That makes sense. And so – If this is the contract they can get, they kind of sign it and um, maybe don't read the fine
2: print saying, "Hey, if you do this, that we can still use your image to promote Nike," and you don't get nothing. Something along those lines. (laughs) That makes sense.
3: Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't know all of the details about the timing. I just know there were a number of of athletes who kind of spoke out. Kara Goucher was one. She was announcing this year on the Olympics for the distance running and Alicia Montano and Alison Felix. And and they all kind of talked about how they didn't really have these fair contracts. And Allison ended up going to Athleta and uh, Simone Biles signed with them as well. So I think there are companies now and Nike did change its contract um, for athletes moving forward, which is great. And I think more, companies are following suit, but yeah, I think it is really difficult to be an athlete in a lot of these sports that don't have that year round, um, attention mm-hmm. that, you know, that you would get in the NBA or the WNBA or the NFL or whatever. Um, so yeah, imagine like being an archer is <laughs> difficult because you're not getting paid. Yeah, by I, mean,
2: I don't even think how many people watch archery there. I mean, it's,
3: I watched it all this year. Well,
2: you did, but I mean, I could say, like, (laughs) I would just watch the main stuff. And even if it's that, it was probably predominantly just basketball. And
3: See, that's the, like, three on three was fun this year, but why watch basketball in the Olympics when you can watch it? all the other times you
2: know and that's a great point and I think it was just because that's the only one that I actually followed the most athletes and knew anything about yeah, you but, knew who they were yeah and I think that's the only reason why and so, when I say I watched it I may have watched the gold medal game and maybe <laughs> one before that I was like I was watching it 12 hours a day but I think that yeah. was the only reason like there was a few gymnastics people that I know but I don't follow hardcore so yeah yeah um, that was just, that's just my <laughs> perspective
3: I like what well, I like learning about new sports in the Olympics or not new sports, but like sports that I don't know that much about. And there are definitely some that are more and less entertaining. Yeah. Um, but I, I just watched the Paralympics, which just concluded. And there are a couple of sports in the Paralympics that aren't in the Olympics that were really interesting hmm. to watch just because I've never seen them before. And I don't even know how they work. So um so it was fun to watch well i think
2: skateboarding was in there this year too and i think tony hawk had a lot to do with that and i'm a fan of him and i don't skateboard at all but i didn't even watch any of it but i thought it was kind of cool that it was being part of that
3: yeah it was fun i i don't know they had two different events and the first one was sort of i don't know it wasn't as fun um when they were just throwing like a single trick but when they did the full they had like a minute or something to do to go around the skate park and do as many things as possible. That was a lot of fun to
2: watch. Yeah. Well, it does seem that women's volleyball gets a lot more attention compared to men's volleyball. And I can kind of understand why TV is doing it that way, but also not, they shouldn't be almost just using like, I guess, you know, I, I don't know how to say this, but, you know, I guess they're promoting women's bodies in order to get more ratings just because, you know, women's volleyball, I think there was a shorts kind of like, hey, they got fined for their shorts being too long or too short. I might, be, that was I might be butchering actually,
3: this. That was actually beach handball.
2: Beach, oh, okay.
3: And it, okay. that's not a sport in the Olympics, but oh, a lot of people made, a lot of, it's, it's okay. Cause yeah. it happened right before the Olympics. And a lot of people made comparisons to beach volleyball because there is a, maybe that's what I'm getting confused on. Okay. A uniform thing, but they are now allowed to wear, they can wear shorts um, or bikinis. They sort of have a choice. Um, it was so hot in Tokyo this year that of course they, most of the teams went for as little as possible because it was so hot.
2: But I mean, is that just, I always thought that was just one of the rules that, Hey, we want women to wear the shortest shorts that they can just because for
3: ratings. Yeah,
2: exactly. Ratings and views.
3: Yeah, it has been. Um, I think they're finally rectifying that. I know in, uh, 2012, when boxing was introduced to the Olympics, initially the women were going to be required to wear skirts while they boxed. And there was a huge outcry over that. Like women were like, what if we want to wear shorts? Um, and they finally relented and allowed women to wear either shorts or a skirt. Um, but there has been a rule in the past for volleyball players. There's been one for figure skaters that they can't, you know, they had to wear certain cut of, um, is, I don't know, is it a leotard in? I feel I like it's know. something else. Something else in figure skating. <laughs> I can't remember what their costumes are called. Um, and then, they're, yeah, they're, women's women's uh, clothing or uniforms for sports have been regulated from the start. I do talk about that in the book as well. And when sports were first kind of accepted for women in the late 1800s, it was only ones that they could look ladylike while doing. So we're talking croquet, or tennis, or anything where they could wear a long skirt. and Like they weren't allowed uh, to wear pants. No. And in the first Olympics that women participated in, they all wore long skirts, which makes it hard to play a lot of different sports because skirts are very constricting. Um, <laughs> and and so, in some sports, it makes sense to wear a skirt, but very few does it make sense to wear an ankle length skirt, which is what they were wearing. Um, So it's really interesting because when bicycling became a big craze in the 1890s, um, that is what kind of led to uh, clothing reform for women because they were getting into cycling and they realized they couldn't cycle very well with these long skirts and with these corsets. And so they started to uh, bring the hemline up a little bit. It started to loosen the waist and all of that, and it eventually led to women ditching so much of that restrictive clothing.
2: Is that what started getting more ratings and views back then? Is that also?
3: Well, there were no, there wasn't anything <laughs> I, I know back then. I
2: exactly, <laughs> but we're like they. I guess they started noticing more attention from the opposite sex, or just there were. You know, let's keep it going.
3: There were all of these magazine articles telling women and. Um, you know, not to show their ankles because that was an invitation for for men to lust after them, basically. So the onus was put on the women not to show too much skin because the men couldn't take it. Um, and I think that we still see that today, unfortunately, where women are responsible for men's reactions to them.
2: Well, that's usually the narrative, but it's not always the case i guess hopefully i said that correctly but hmm but showing us some ankle huh
3: ankle was (laughs) that (laughs) there's this great there was this article that showed all of these different ankles in different cities so like what (laughs) the cyclists in boston were wearing versus new york versus louisville and like (laughs) what the styles were for showing ankle in those places Well, i would
2: say you know in boston and stuff in the colder months i wouldn't be showing a whole lot of anything but it's just me i guess
3: well this is when bloomers come into vogue and other things other garments where you can move a little bit more and 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 put socks on but (laughs) where you don't have to have a skirt to because the just think of the wind resistance with all those layers that they had on it just made it really hard to pedal and they were like forget this and the, the bike was super exciting for them because for the first time, women could go somewhere without a chaperone. They could get exercise. Yeah. They could, you know, meet friends and was it, it really. Yeah, they changed.
2: didn't have to live their typical, you know, when I say they, you know, the typical, I don't want to use the word narrative again, but no, I was usually like, hey, you just stay home and hang out and. Let everyone else go do it. But, yeah, I agree 100%. Like, get out there and do your thing and, you know, and like, live your life. And, like, yeah, meet other people and show what you got. If you got something to show in sports, do it. So, yeah, yeah. be a badass. Yeah, I can resonate with that 100%. I mean, you know, just – I couldn't – you know, like, the one thing this pandemic is, you know, I've learned from it is that, you know, sitting inside sucks. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, and, like, you know, and I may have said this before, talked about this before on here, but, I mean, just – My mindset and the way I am, I know that I always feel better when I'm out moving around, picking up something heavy, and it doesn't have to be, everyone's got their thing, and that's just CrossFit's my thing, but you just feel better. I mean, we're just, I feel like our bodies are just made to move, you know, just, we're not made to sit around and stare at our phones all day and Netflix, which I do that too. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that, but. Right. But yeah, just, I couldn't imagine just, I just couldn't know how my mind completely like get stress-free and like that's my happy place and just I couldn't imagine just somebody never getting to do that and then all of a sudden boom you're out there in the world just like you said cycling and showing off what you got it's almost like a cow seeing the grass for the first time in its life or a dog I guess maybe a cow's a bad example but I don't know
3: right yeah it was interesting because it was one of the catalysts for women's suffrage once they got that little taste of independence of riding a bicycle they were like uh, we need some more rights around here. So it it went beyond just, um, you know, being able to move their bodies, which, of course, is very important. But that's one of the things that Strong Like Her makes connections between is physical strength and all kinds of other strengths, like mental and emotional mm-hmm. and all of that.
2: Well, it's 2021. So where do you see the future for, like we just said, women's sports and physical, emotional and mental health going with women's sports? And if you want to talk about that too.
3: Yeah, good question. So I mentioned earlier that I interviewed Catherine Switzer for the book, who was an early marathoner. And she brought up a point that I never really thought about before that I thought was really interesting. And that is that the way that we look at athletic um, accomplishment right now is within a paradigm of which sports are popular. So sports like football are popular, which we require power and strength and speed. But what if there are sports in the future that value endurance and balance and strategy? You know, those are things that women can excel at. So as new sports are developed, we may have completely different ideas about who we consider to be the best athletes. Uh, So I don't know what's going to happen. I think in the near term that we are seeing more uh, respect for women's sports, we're seeing people, um, getting stronger across the board, but I think we're seeing women really getting a lot more interested in strength sports. They've exploded over the past 10 years in terms of how many women are powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting and doing CrossFit and all of that. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing, we've talked about the sponsorships. I think we're seeing more movement on that, um, side of things. And, One area I think we still have uh, room to improve in is actually who commentates on sports. Um, In the Olympics this year, Hmm. the majority of the commentators were still men. There were a lot of women, but they were typically in um, sideline reporting roles and they weren't doing the play-by-play analysis. So that's one area I'm interested in looking at moving forward is who gets to talk about sports um, and why.
2: You know, I didn't even ever make that regulation or whatever, that idea that only is predominantly male commentators. Like, I can only think of a handful of, like, there's, I can't even think, Cheryl Miller was one for the NBA. They got another one. I can't remember her name at all. But yeah, I mean, hmm. Like, I only probably sure. name two or three. And there was one famous yeah. college football player, or not football, football female commentator. Blonde, Aaron Andrews. That's her name. Yeah, that's the only probably. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's probably the only ones I could actually name that in ma- major sports that actually commentated as far as for But know. isn't
3: Aaron Andrews a sideline reporter?
2: True. You're right.
3: That's the thing. So sideline reporting is a job that a fair amount of women are in, but they're very they're not very often in the booth calling uh, with the actual now. game. And um, I'm reading a book right now uh, called Sidelined about um, women, you know, women in sports journalism, basically. And it's really interesting how it's been a very short amount of time that women have been allowed to commentate at all. And there's still a huge imbalance. And so many of the arguments that people use, like, oh, well, she never played this sport there are many, many male commentators who never played whatever sport it is on a high level. And we're not like, oh, you weren't in the MLB, so you can't talk about baseball. We accept what they say about baseball. So
2: it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I agree a hundred percent with that statement just because like, I have friends and even my brother that has never played at that level by any means. But talking to him, he can list off statistics without even having notes in front of him, looking up on Google or whatever. And it's just like, I don't even understand how you remember it. So, yeah, it can be done if you have the willingness just to sit around and do the research. And, and if you enjoy it, that's great. Like you know, like I said, for example, my brother. But, yeah, it can be done. That's my, that's my point. No, it's so, definitely
3: yeah. not a requirement. And same with coaching. You don't have to have been a high-level player necessarily to be a great coach. There are a lot of great coaches who – didn't play at the highest level mm-hmm. um and you know that's that's a number, another area coaching and sort of who's in the management office of these different teams that we still see a lot of imbalance
2: i heard once heard a quote that it was basically said that the better player or athlete you were at your individual sport the worst coach you would ever be
3: i think that's kind of true i mean i I remember once I went surfing in Costa Rica, I'd never been surfing before. And this was a mistake, but I just went out with this guy who was recommended by someone at my hostel. And he was a great surfer. And when I asked him, you know, I'm out there, I'm getting like beaten by the waves. And I was like, can you give me some tips? And he was like, just stand up. And I'm like, how do i stand up on this (laughs) board like i've never been surfing before like give me something to work with dude and he's like i don't know i just stand up and it's like he's a great surfer so he doesn't know how to explain to somebody else how to surf because he's never had to break it down it's always come naturally to him Mm -hmm. he's always been good at it and of course there are some people who do sports who learn to be great coaches but i think there is something about sometimes when you're really good at something, it doesn't mean that you can teach other people how to do it.
2: Yeah. No, I agree hundred percent because, you know, you know, I coach a couple of classes across for the week or two and that I think coaches need coaches and that I always learn from other coaches. And if you sit around and do the work and like, you know, not everybody learns the way you think that they learn as far as it be verbal, you know, you're showing a demonstration or you're kind of doing both at the same time, but Say if I'm teaching you, like, clean and jerk, for example, you're not going to get it just from me. Like, hey, just do this. You know, people need more. Yeah. And that's one thing I've learned as far as my little coaching career I have, if you want to call that. So but definitely everyone
3: and when this we're getting off topic now but
2: that's
0: okay
3: when have you heard a cue from a coach that suddenly like clicks in your head and you're like oh that makes sense whereas your other coach has been trying to tell you the same thing in different words for a while but someone else just says it and like makes a different you know metaphor or whatever it is and you're suddenly like oh yes I get it now so everyone benefits from different approaches and good coaches know how to uh, you know, use different approaches for different athletes. And that's not necessarily correlated with having been one of the best yourself. No.
2: Have you ever seen a movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Yes. With Paul Rudd. He's trying to teach. I forgot the other guy's name, but he's trying to teach him how to surf. And he's like, hey, just do more. Now do less. Now you got to do something. <laughs> that kind of reminded me of the story you just told me. So, and he's trying oh. to teach him.
3: It was terrible. I came back with just, they were also supposed to bring a rash guard for me and they didn't. So I just came back. My entire stomach was um, just like cut up from the board. And it was, I remember it was Christmas time when I came back and I like, it hurt to have a shirt on because I was all torn up on my abdomen. So anyway, good times, but I did. Okay, I'm not going to say... This is why. But I later tried surfing again in Tofino, where there is a surf school run by women, and I got it. I stood up multiple times on the board. Nice. And I'm not gonna say it was because women were teaching <laughs> me, but it might have been because women were teaching me.
2: Hmm. I like that. Well, you did it though. Huh. So is that the yeah. only two times you've uh, surfed?
3: Yes. I've keep... only done it twice. Oh,
2: you didn't keep the party going after you learned. To stand I didn't. Is no, it fun? I've I... never done it. Like.
3: It was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of scary. Like they, I have a healthy respect for the ocean, which I think everyone should because the ocean can do whatever it wants. Um, so
1: cool. I, agree. I
3: think <laughs> um, one of the chapters in my book actually talks about the early long distance swimmers who were out in the ocean, who were of course supposed to swim in skirts at the time you're supposed to swim in wool skirts and, Um, Yeah, wool or flannel was what swimwear was made of back then because it insulated from the cold, but it's not super buoyant. So uh, it was very hard for women wearing long skirts. Plus, they had booties on. They had blouses that had like big puffy sleeves. They wore like a cap, like a hat kind of thing. And um, so a lot of women didn't want to learn how to swim because it was dangerous just to get in the water with all this stuff on. And so I talk about this in the book because it led to a tragedy. Women didn't know how to swim. And so those early swimmers who were kind of bucking the norms and wearing male swimsuits, um, they were really daredevils. Like they were really out there doing something very different because Swimming in the ocean is serious and going against what um, what those cultural norms were was serious, too. So they were pretty badass.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, so swimming in open water and compared to a swimming pool is a completely different ballgame. So
3: different. I mentioned I swam in high school and that was, yeah. um, you know, one of my main sports. And I did a triathlon a while ago that was in open water. And I really didn't practice in open water beforehand because I was a pretty strong swimmer in a pool. And I was like, I got this. And then I got into (laughs) open water and I was like, no, get me out of here. This is horrible. Like people are kicking me in the face and it's totally different swimming in those waves than when you're uh, in a pool.
2: Yeah, so you got pretty humbled there. I've had my-
3: I did get humbled. (laughs) I totally got humbled. And one of the women in my book is a long distance swimmer. She uh, has swum- She's in the Guinness Book of World Records for swimming um, no big deal. on six continents in 16 days.
1: Oh. Uh,
3: a marathon on each continent, I should say. Okay. Um, and she's also, sw- she's done the seven ice miles challenge, which is when you swim on all seven, an ice mile on all seven continents. Hmm. And an ice mile is like freezing water. And anyway, she's incredible. And she's really inspired me to think about trying some kind of open water challenge because I just think it would be mentally difficult and I'm attracted to that, but it's hard to coordinate. You need to have people out there with you. You can't just jump into the ocean and see what happens.
2: So you're attracted to doing things that are tough for you. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yes. I like that. Yeah. It's
2: always, fun. I, yeah. Cause you know, you don't want to take always the easy road that if you take, The harder road, you kind of find out – we talked about this maybe a little bit earlier, but you find out what kind of what you're made of. And you know what – you know, that's one argument that when people who do CrossFit is that, you know, say we got 50 box jumps to do or whatever exit thing. You know, I'm talking about 10,000-meter road like we talked about earlier. So after you do something that like that, regular life almost just comes to be easier. You know, somebody – Flicks you off going down the road because you may or may not have cut them off or whatever. And you're kind of like, all right, whatever, fuck it, no big deal. So, yeah, I mean, I agree because, like, well, that's one thing that also this little fitness and journey, if that's what you want to call it, that I'm on, has taught me is that, oh, yeah, you know, don't always have to take the easy road, you know, take a harder road and find out what you're made of. And, you know, you actually learned a lot about yourself, or I have anyway. And that's been my experience. And that might be generalizing, but.
3: No, absolutely. I think that goes back to what we're talking about with the connection between physical strength and other types of strength. Mm-hmm. Like you, you do build up that mental strength by go, learning that you can take on these challenges. And I think there's a saying in CrossFit, like, um, I'm trying to think of it. It's something like, I hate you. I hate this. I'll see you tomorrow yeah. kind of thing where you're just like, this was horrible. There was nothing about it that I enjoyed. And yet I will be back tomorrow to do it again, because there is something about being able to do those terrible workouts and Mm -hmm. get through them, especially together. And then, you know, try it again.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's like when you said together, I mean, you know, I've met some of my best friends just through this whole CrossFit thing. And I mean, it doesn't have to be CrossFit, it can be what anybody's doing, but you know, you when you're, you know, taking grenades there in a trench, you know, working out with other people around you and they're all, you know, hey, it sucks. You know, it sucks for them, too. But it, it creates a new bond. I mean,
3: yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's a lot of why CrossFit has been so popular is because wow. it does create that community and people are looking for that kind of community. Yeah.
2: This, I mean, this kind of just hit my I don't know why my brain just thought of this, but you know who Wim Hof is? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, like, his breathing techniques, and I guess I was going to mention this earlier. Why it just hit me now, but him do like putting himself through these, like you know, I think he swam underwater for X amount of distance, and I think he's got a real record for that. And but just putting himself through stuff like that is just, I mean, something I would like to build up to maybe one day. But but yeah, and just the way his breathing techniques that he teaches—if that's a real thing—and how he releases something in his breath. I don't. I think it was DMT, but I could be wrong on that. But releases something in his brain that way he can keep going.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's yeah, pretty badass.
3: Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm not there yet, but
2: I agree, 100. percent Me neither.
3: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe one day. day.
2: Yeah, maybe one day in the next 20 years if we're still here, and maybe with CRISPR technology, maybe change a few genes or something. But who knows? Um, right. Haley, we did over an hour. Um,
3: here we are. I, th- I I still have things to say.
2: Oh yeah, you want to keep going?
3: Well, no, no, <laughs> no I'm good. I'm good. I'm okay. just saying, I didn't know if no. I would be able to talk this long, but no. I did. Oh,
2: Yeah, you did, and um, yeah, like I, I, just literally just got home from the gym, and I am starving right now. So that's kind of where my mind's going. But um, before we get off here, your book, Strong Like Her, tell everybody how to find you on the socials and the Instaface and all that good stuff. And <laughs> if you want to or don't, it's your choice. Uh, so yeah, it's your moment now.
3: Yeah. The book is available wherever books are sold. You can get it from a local bookseller or your favorite online retailer. And you can find me at HaleyShapley.com or on social media at HaleyShapley.
2: Nice. Well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was was awesome. I enjoyed talking to you.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome. All right. All right. Go read people and stay classy and all that good stuff.